Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Habakkuk chapter 3. We can finish, God willing, our study of Habakkuk this morning. And we probably are entering the, the section of the book most well-known, most well-loved. Comforting verses, verses of vibrant faith and trust, I think made all the more powerful by the backdrop of the rest of the book. So I'd like to read Habakkuk 3, 16 and 19, have a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The choir master with stringed instruments. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the faith of Habakkuk, the faith to pray this prayer with him, that even as we look to an uncertain future, we can be certain that you will accomplish your purposes through it. And even as, Lord, um, you, you discipline and chasten those you call sons and daughters, even though you raise up rulers as you please, we can be confident that you will achieve your purposes and that in the end, you will make all things right. So Lord, give us the faith to quietly wait and to resolve to take hope and joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk is a short book dealing with the problem of evil, dealing with evil all around. I'll remind you briefly, it's a dialogue. Habakkuk brings a question or complaint to the Lord. And in phase one, he asks, Lord, why aren't you doing anything about all the evil around me? Why aren't you doing anything about the lawlessness? His, his complaint probably most clearly summarized in one four. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. And his initial question insinuates the Lord's not paying attention. The Lord is not um, nearby and doing anything. And so God's response to him is, no, no, I'm, I'm well aware and I'm, I'm actively doing something. I am raising up the Chaldeans the Babylonians, and they will come just as I promised, the Lord says in Deuteronomy, and judge this people and take them from the land. Well, that raises a second problem for Habakkuk. That, that wasn't the solution he'd envisioned. That wasn't the remedy he was looking for. And so he is troubled by the fact that as wicked as Israel is, the people that the Lord is raising up to judge them are more wicked still. And so he asks in, in 113, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, 
and you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Lord, how can you raise up such a wicked people as Babylon and not compromise your holiness? How, how can you do that? And the Lord's response in chapter 2 is twofold. A word to Habakkuk and those standing behind him which is where the Apostle Paul gets his text, his proof that the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ is through faith alone. In verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not right within him, speaking of Babylon, but the righteous shall live by faith. And what God tells Habakkuk is specifically in these difficult times where where you don't understand, where you are vexed, where you are troubled, and, and you do not comprehend what I'm doing. Trusting in me is how my righteous ones live. Faith in God, even in and through difficulty, suffering. That, that is what he calls Habakkuk to. And then proceeds to make it clear that he is well aware of Babylon's evil and iniquity, and he intends to judge them. And if that confounds you, you can join the group with Habakkuk. The Lord raises kings and rulers as he pleases. He calls um, Nero his minister, not by name, but Paul makes it clear the Roman official Caesar is God's minister for good, which has got to be a striking thing for the first century Christians to hear. He calls Cyrus his anointed. He raises Pharaoh up. He gets to be God. And he gets to deal with the nations as he pleases. And his ways are right and good, even as we do not always understand them. Which leads Habakkuk in chapter 3 to respond. If you point you back to chapter 2, even as he makes his second complaint, he he realizes and he's confident that God has an answer. He's not coming to the Lord like a petulant child might, saying, answer me, explain yourself. You know, that, that the way that a child is able to say, why? In such a demanding tone. That, that's not Habakkuk's attitude. I read this far more like a child going, I, I don't understand, Father. And he even anticipates being corrected in 2-1 after he makes his second response. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's, he's fully expecting after the Lord responds that he will need to answer, that that he will be set straight. So he's not asking as though God has no possible explanation, but rather, I I don't understand, I'm vexed. And so after the Lord gives his answer, uh, the the book closes with a psalm, a song. We've looked at it in four parts. Um, Initially, there's a sandwich of faith on both ends. Um, Verse 2 really parallels with where we pick up in verse 16, hearing and fearing. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. And the only petitions in the psalm, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In the time in between, in between God's declaration of judgment and discipline, and when the end comes and all is made right, in the intervening years where we await God's final salvation. Lord, sustain us. Give us life. That's linking back to the just shall live by faith. 
in the intervening years, in the years in between, O oh Lord. Make it known. Give understanding. It's, it's difficult to live in these times. And in the midst of wrath, remember mercy. And then from 3 to 15, Habakkuk envisions the Lord God coming the end of time to judge the nations, to judge Babylon. And he does it using the description and the language of the exodus and the flood and creation. He's using past works of God to describe his future work. And we get now to his final response. 16 through 19 is Habakkuk's final response. And so we see here the determined commitment of faith. Let's look at verse 16 first. Faith's patient resolve. Faith's patient resolve. Very similar, echoing the words of verse 2. I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Faith's patient resolve. What characterizes this section of commitment are the three I wills. Here in verse 19, I will wait. Verse 18, I will rejoice. And again in verse 18, I will take joy. These are three resolutions, commitments. They don't happen accidentally. Habakkuk has asked his questions. He has been answered. He has been given a vision of God's future judgment and justice. And now here's his response. And it begins with hearing and fearing. Back in, in verse 2, again, I hear and I fear. Same thing here. And so here's, here's the tension we, we need to maintain that we need to allow for. Hoping in God, taking joy in God. Nowhere in the Bible is seen as removing or in, or in opposition to, struggling, wrestling, agonizingly waiting. But both exist He's committing to hope and take joy even as his knees are weak. His body trembles. The, the, the news that his beloved people, his countrymen, his homeland will be given over to wicked, pagan Babylon doesn't stop being an awful, challenging piece of news. God's answer isn't as though to say, really, this is delightful and smile. No, it's awful. The book of Lamentation testifies to it. The, the resolution for God's people is not the awful things aren't really awful. The resolution is for the awful things is even as they are awful, trusting that God is using them for his purposes, and even as we go through affliction now, trusting that God will make all things right. This is how the Apostle Paul testifies to it in 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that in the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. And then a little later, for we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. But this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul's hope and joy and inward renewal doesn't cancel out his suffering. It, it stabilizes it. And so the first thing I want you to hear this morning is 
trusting in God, trusting that God knows what he's doing does not mean that you won't tremble, that you won't feel weak, that what he is doing may not seem terrible at times to you. And just because you quake under the events in your life, it does not indicate a lack of faith. What matters is in the whirlwind, in the judgment, what will you do? How will you respond? Habakkuk tells us how he will respond. That makes all the difference. So notice first his weakness and his infirmity under point A, hearing and fearing. Um, he's describing the experience we all have at times when we're so afraid it, it, it affects our physiology. Our knees rattle, we shake. My body trembles. He's stammering. My, my, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's vivid, descriptive language. Even as the descriptive language of his joy that shows up in the last three verses is bright, both are coexisting in Habakkuk. Understand that. There can be a shallowness sometimes to Christianity where we think no matter what happens, we smile, we grin, and we say, hi-de-ho. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Two-thirds of the Psalms contain lament. And if we believe that, and worse yet, if we teach that to other people, then when they enter difficulties, when they enter seasons of dryness, when the whirlwind hits them, when the cancer comes, when the job is lost, when the deaths come, they'll be left unmanned broken no no that the the just living by faith is in the brokenness in the trembling in the anguish in the confusion trusting god finding hope and joy in god that that is the picture we see here so he's hearing and fearing just as he began this and we see his trembling and his agitation and the reason i highlight that we're trembling is it's been a theme throughout chapter three in verse 2, what the ESV renders as in wrath, remember mercy, literally is in a time of trembling or in trembling, remember mercy. It's, the key point here is it's the same word that's used throughout chapter 3. About the nations and then finally about Habakkuk himself. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. So when he prayed and asked the Lord in a time of trembling, remember mercy, we're seeing in 16, he's trembling. It's for a time like this, he's asking for mercy and help. How will he respond? How will he respond? Um, his trembling and his agitation by waiting and by watching. This is the first I will of faith. Now, up to this point, every time God has answered him, Habakkuk's had another question. But notice here that God's answer now is sufficient. He's silent. There's no more questions. God's answer is sufficient. Habakkuk's in awe of the Lord God, his plan, his program, his purposes. And that's not to say he understands everything. He's already prayed for understanding. In the midst of the years, make it known. Verse 2. But he's, he has enough of an answer that he's satisfied. He, he switched from being concerned that God was not concerned enough about his holiness and justice to interceding on behalf of the rivers and the seas. Lord, were you angry at them? 
He, he understands God will do justly. God will make all things right. And so he's silent now. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God's answer is sufficient. Notice second of all, he's committed now. He will endure discipline without further complaint. There is no pleading, Lord, please don't take us off the land. He, he understands the rightness of it. I mean, again, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy where the Lord made it clear, if, if you will hold fast to my covenant, then I will bless you, and I will multiply you, and you will be secure. But if you are faithless to my covenant, I will drive you from this land. So Habakkuk recognizes the rightness of the judgment, even as the judgment makes him tremble. And again, you can recognize this is right, this is good, and still be undone by it. Habakkuk's um, used vivid language to describe his agitation, his fear, his trembling, his terror. But he, he has no more questions. He has no more petitions. What will he do in face of this? He looks to, point three here, the Lord's justice and mercy. He looks to the Lord's justice and mercy. He's committed. I'll endure it. Habakkuk's going to live through, most likely, the Babylonian invasion coming in three waves. And, and again, as a country that's never really been successfully invaded since our founding, we don't know what it's like to see foreigners on our soil destroying our buildings, taking captive our loved ones. This is what Jeremiah describes so vividly in Lamentations, the anguish of beloved homeland, a beloved people destroyed, taken into slavery, captivity, and he's, he is agitated, vexed, and in anguish about it, even as he recognizes this is right, this is fitting. This is what God said he would do to his people if they're faithless. And so he looks beyond the immediate discipline. He looks beyond the immediate time of difficulty to the day when God will make things right. As God said, ultimately Babylon would get theirs. And so he says, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I'll wait quietly. And this is similar to what Psalm 94, 12 through 15 says. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. And that phrase, day of trouble, seems to be an Old Testament reference to, to final judgment, at least in many instances. I'll, I'll point out a couple to you. Proverbs 16:4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Jeremiah 16, 4, the Lord, Jeremiah, no, Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. And then Jeremiah 51, 1 through 2. The Lord, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lebkamai. And I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty the land when they come against her from every side on the day of 
trouble. So he's, he's waiting. This is the challenge. I, I speak to people who are grieved and anguished about wrongs and injustices done, and there's something right about that. The, the biblical response is not, it doesn't matter. The biblical response about it is, give it to God. Vengeance is God's. Give it to God. Trust that he will make things right in his time. That's what we see here. I'm going to wait. You said you're going to make it right. I want it made right, so I will sit patiently and wait until you make it right. He looks to the Lord's justice and mercy. So that's the first half of his response. What I've heard, what you've told me, is hard to hear. Your people will be invaded, defeated, and taken into captivity. I tremble, I quake, even as I recognize the rightness of that. And I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm going to wait. That's the first response of faith. How does faith respond to such awful, awful news? There's another component, faith's joyful commitment. Faith's joyful commitment. And now we enter the verses that are probably most commonly written on posters, bumper stickers, T-shirts. Sweet verses, but I think significantly brighter still in their context in this book. Habakkuk's just been told God's immediate plan for the world and the world nations, involving conquest after conquest by a terrible people. And yes, they will ultimately get theirs. Yes, ultimately Babylon will fall. And ultimately, at the end of time, God will make all things right. But in the meantime, it's going to be hard going. Faith doesn't just stop with accepting God's news. It, it determines, it commits, it purposes to hope and trust in God. Faith's joyful commitment. Point A. Now we have Habakkuk, an envisioned economic calamity. Okay, so he's got the bad news. And now what he's doing is he's purposing, even in that bad news, if things get worse, what will I do? Preparing for calamity is often the key in persevering through calamity. One of the reasons why I talk about, write about, suffering, is it will come to you. If you live long enough, you will experience profound suffering and brokenness. All who follow the man of sorrows will. You'll have seasons of joy. You'll have seasons of mountaintop experiences as well. But you will go through times of debasement. You will go through times of absolute undoing. Just live long enough. It will happen. Commit now to what you will do then. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. These things that he's now writing out haven't happened. But he's committing to what he will do if and when they do happen. That's the key. So what he's envisioning is total agricultural failure. Total agricultural failure. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. That is whether it's through war and the fields being trampled, whether it's through the people being dead so they don't plant the crop, whether it's through a drought, there is no agricultural produce. What characterized the promised land was its its fertility. So he says, suppose there's zero crop, zero harvest, zero fruit, And in addition to that, total livestock destruction. 
and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, for someone in Habakkuk's day, that, that's complete economic collapse. Complete economic collapse. There's, there's no livestock, there's no animals, either to work or to eat. There's no crop. What, what then? I'd encourage you to consider, well, purpose now what you intend to do if the thing you fear most comes upon you. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. He's been given bad news, and he says, yet even if the worst possible things could happen. I mean, just, you can just imagine what it would look like living, seeing people starving around you because there's no produce, there's no animals, there's nothing. Even then, what will you do? He determined determined and confident joy. We get to the second I will. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. See, he's envisioning a scenario where all the things that make his life sweet, olives, figs, lamb, beef, all the things, the, the fruit of the land, the fruit of animals, all the things that made the promised land dripping with milk and honey, all those things are gone. All the sweet things of life are gone. The things that sustain you in life are gone. It looks as though you're going to starve to death. What do you still have? What does he find hope in? He still has the Lord. We sing the song, all I have is Christ. We, we need to commit that when the things we love most are taken from us, and we, and we would do well to do it now ahead of time. It is hard enough to do this when it happens if you're unprepared. Determine now, whatever the Lord takes from you, whatever beloved thing you're holding on to that may crumble in your hands, you still, if you, if you know God through Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in his death on the cross, his resurrection, his life, you have everything. You have nothing that can truly be taken from you. And so we can say, we should say, even if the things I hold most dear are taken from me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You know, I, I say this frequently um, as a reminder to myself that the, the Lord does not owe me my family. The Lord, I don't want it to happen, but if, if my wife was driving, got hit by another car, and I did, got the awful news, I would be broken and undone, no, no question. All of the trembling and the lips quivering and the rottenness entering my bones and my legs trembling beneath me, I, I believe would occur. But I hope I would be able to say what I know is true now, even if that were to happen, God does me no wrong. My, my, all these good things in my life are graces and gifts, and I love them and I long for them, and I do not want them to be taken from me. But he does me no wrong if he does. He has only done good to me. And, and looking that reality in the faith, in the face, so that in the day of calamity, we know what we need to strive to do. It won't be easy, but at least knowing what I must do in that day is to take hope and joy in God and determine to do that now. Determined to do that now. Determined and confident joy. First, we see its expression. Yet I will rejoice in 
the Lord. He's rejoicing in who God is. He's using God's covenant name, Yahweh, the God who first made himself known to Moses at the burning bush, the God who redeemed his people from slavery, the God who delivered them through the exodus and the Red Sea, the God who entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. We could add the God who sent his son on our behalf. I I will rejoice in him. You can take everything from me, but if I have the Lord God, I have something to rejoice in. And I commit and I purpose that when those things I hold most dear are stripped from me, that I will endeavor, I will strive. This is what faith does. This is what faith is. I I will rejoice in the Lord. Job put it this way, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Another, another important thing to do is to settle this now. Because if the Lord is not that precious to you today, what stability will you have tomorrow when the whirlwind comes, when the famine comes, when the fig tree is barren? When the flock is cut off from the fold. Take time now to do business with the Lord. Take time now. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's a firm footing and rock to stand on. It's not as though, again, it's not as though the calamity is not calamitous and terrible and terrifying. He's quaking, he's shaking, he's stammering. And faith in that says, I I will, I will find joy in the Lord, in the God of my salvation. And then he gives us a cause, a reason why. It's not as though this commitment is random. There's good reason to find joy in the Lord, even in utter collapse, socially, economically. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places quickly. Three, three reasons. It's cause. The determined and confident joy is first its expression and now it's cause. God the Lord is my strength. Now turn, turn in your Bible to Exodus 15. Here, he may even be directly quoting the song of Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 15. If he's not directly quoting it, he is alluding to it pretty heavily. When the people crossed the Red Sea, when the people of, e- of Israel crossed the Red Sea, they, they sang a song to the Lord. And, and much of what we've read in Habakkuk 3 has echoed this. Um, I just want to read the first three verses, Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing praise to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Let me read to you again what Habakkuk just said. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
That's what he says here in Exodus 15 too. He makes my feet like the deer's, makes me tread on my high places. And again, he's finding the strength to do this by looking back again and again to God's past action. That was another key feature of this psalm in, in making it through calamitous times and great adversity and suffering, looking again and again and again at God's faithfulness in the past so that we can lay hold of his faithfulness in the future by faith. The Lord God is my strength. Next, he makes my feet like the deer's. And this is a picture of stability and security. Deers are able to climb and move with great speed and agility. And so it's a picture of that type of security. This is similar to 2 Samuel 22, 31 to 34, David's song, praising God. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. God is his savior. God is his strength. God is the one who makes him stable and secure. And finally, he makes me tread on my high places. He makes me tread on my high places. Even though he's going through a deep valley immediately, God, still a picture of security here, the, the deer treading up on rocky, high terrain, but it's also one of exaltation. Listen to Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirteen. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Even as they go into captivity, the Lord's going to provide stability. The Lord's going to provide what he needs. He's going to give him provision and stability and certainty, even as everything around him is uncertain. That's, that's what faith promises to do. So again, settle it now. When the day of adversity comes, when the day of trouble comes, when the bad news comes, when the job is lost, when the home's repossessed, when the child dies, when whatever awful and awful things and even more awful things happen. And I talk to people. People talk to me. They, they sh- we live in a difficult world. And if you're not experiencing it, I am glad, but give it time. Give it time. There's a reason two-thirds of the Psalms express lament. And commit that even as awful and difficult as it is, that you will endure patiently, that you will look with eyes of faith to the day when the Lord God makes all things right, and commit that in that maelstrom, you too will find joy in who God is for you and what he has done for you. So that you can say, all I, all I have is Christ, and that is enough. That is everything. God upholds me. God gives me strength. He is my salvation. And so you can take everything from me, and it will hurt. But I will yet praise him. I will yet take my joy in him. This is what faith, this is the fight of faith. It matters. It matters what we take joy and hope in. And faith fights and purposes. And notice the planning. This is beforehand. This is what I'm going to do when it happens. He's going to rejoice in God. Which brings us finally to faith's final subscription. 
subscription. It's just the end of the psalm. On a, on a side note, this pattern of psalms having a um, prefix and a postscript, something at the beginning and something at the end, um, is significant because we see that same pattern in the book of Psalms. And Pastor Daniel, I may post later today, Pastor Daniel did a, a, a great message explaining the significance of that. But notice this. If you're tempted to think this dialogue with God, this experience of Habakkuk, well, that's his personal and private experience. And it's very interesting to be told it. And it's very interesting that he might share it with us. This makes it crystal clear God intends this for all of us. This song is not Habakkuk's private, personal reflection. It's given to all God's people, to the choir master, for inclusion in Israel's songbook. Same heading as Psalm 4 or probably Psalm 3. Um, so it's for all God's people to learn, and it's for all God's people to sing. This, this point is reiterated again and again in Scripture. Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians ten eleven. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So as we... Um, close our study, and I hope to be end this message as we began our first message of reading through the entire book of Habakkuk. I just want to summarize what we've seen and learned. It is right to be grieved by evil. It is right to feel great anguish when injustice is done around us, when oppression, lawlessness, evil is done. Habakkuk cries out to God, that's a right response. We shouldn't grow callous to it. The second thing we learn is God is more aware, more upset, more concerned with these things than even we are. But his ways are not our ways and his answers are not always what we would want. We've learned that God rules the nations and he raises up whom he pleases and he can use a wicked nation like Babylon to accomplish his purposes. Ironically, Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, will ultimately write about a chapter of the Bible in Daniel after the Lord humbles him and teaches him who the Most High is. We've learned that ultimately it's final justice of the Lord that will settle all matters and that will provide for us final satisfaction. There is no promise in this life of justice. You just look through history. People get away with it. Stalin, Mao, others. If, if, if justice is only in this life and world, then there is no justice. Give up any hopes of justice. Um, but we, we take comfort that there is a day of trouble coming. And we will be spared by it by faith. And again, understand this. The, the, the vivid and terrible picture that we see of God meeting out justice in Habakkuk 3, you will face that unless you are found in Christ. You, you will face the justice and the wrath of God unless you are one of those who live by faith. This is the verse, chapter 2, verse 4, that Paul quotes twice, the author of Hebrews quotes once, to prove, to establish that rightness before God, right standing before God, forgiveness of your sins is not a result of what you do, it's not a result of obedience. It's not a result of any rights you perform. It is a gift of God to those who trust him by faith. 
But trusting in my faith, as we've seen in Habakkuk, can be awfully difficult at times. God's telling Habakkuk, trust me, I know what I'm doing, even as I destroy Israel, even as I deport them. Those who trust me will live by faith. And then we're taught to take hope in those difficult times by looking to the past at God's past salvation and keeping our eyes fixed firmly on the salvation to come and to commit here and now that no matter what happens, no matter what he strips from us, no matter how our plans are frustrated, we will hope and trust and rejoice in him. I think that's the message of Habakkuk for us. So if you'll turn to chapter one, I think we have just enough time to read the book in closing. Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you not, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to see his dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, he brings all of them. Up with a hook, he drags them. Up with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. 
It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not right within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. An utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation. When he makes speechless idols, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon and affliction. The curtain of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? 
Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Have a closing word of prayer, Lord God. Give us the grace and the faith to receive this word. Give us the grace and the faith to decide now what we will do in the day of trouble. Lord, reveal to us enough of yourself. Make it known in the intervening days your glory and your goodness that we might know your strength and your salvation, that we might have a ballast and sure footing in our day of calamity. Lord, for those who are struggling, for those who are now suffering, I pray that you would give them life, that through their faith you would strengthen them, that you would give understanding that in wrath you would remember mercy. Lord God, help us to keep our eyes fixed to the day of Christ, that our ultimate hope would not be seen in things of this world. For then when we lose the things of this world, we are utterly shaken, but if we walk by faith and our eyes look to your future reward, your future return, then we have a confidence that cannot be shaken and with our sorrow and our grief we may have the joy of faith give us the faith to do this the determination to pursue this in jesus name amen